I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 32. While you turn there, let me start us with some thoughts about songs. Songs have a way of getting stuck in our head. There are some songs that are just too good to forget and not to lose you in the pews with a debate of the greatest song of all time or the greatest lyrics, uh, you know, that are impossible to forget. Uh, I think some of you older music lovers will strongly disagree with the young Swifties in the building tonight, but listen, I think for most humans on the planet, you've experienced that moment where a song begins and out of nowhere, you just start singing all the words. And it's a, a song that you haven't heard in years, but the lyrics come right back. Your kids look at you like, how in the world do you know this song? And because you know it now, they no longer like it. And that's a different sermon, but songs have a way of getting stuck in our head, they are seemingly impossible to forget. Some songs we, we don't even know are there. Some songs that we wish we could forget. Parents of toddlers have lost their minds singing songs at 3 a.m. they wish they never knew. Lyrics get written on our hearts. They are impossible for us to forget because God designed us that way. We can learn and recall words so much easier when they're set to music and far more important than some secular song. We know that when set to music, God's truths can be so hard for us to forget. His words through song can be written on our hearts, giving us internal access to his commandments and to his promises. Because of music and song, God's word can be recalled with ease when it's, you know, accompanied by that catchy tune. I mean, I've been at Grace Church for 10 years now, and I've seen it. Most of you don't even need to reach for a hymnal when, you know, we sing Amazing Grace or Be Thou uh, My Vision. Countless hymns we know by heart, and the truths of those hymns, they serve us well in times of need. Throughout your life, through song and music, some amazing truths about God have been irreversibly written on your heart, and not just hymns of the last three or, or four centuries, but God's people have been singing his truths for thousands of years. God intended to teach his people valuable lessons through the Psalter, those songs that were meant to be sung and they were meant to, to serve as teachers. They were meant to be words that would bring comfort when they were thought of or when they were spoken or when they were sung. Those songs that were rehearsed and were sung by God's people, they gave guidance to them and they gave clarity those songs, they gave peace. Uh, they were sources of joy and, and hope. God's people have been thankful for, for those types 
of songs. Through them, we can celebrate the grace of Yahweh in our lives. Songs have always been important. They've always been necessary to God's people. They've played a, a vital role in the way that God instills his truth into our lives. That truth can also confront God's people. It can convict. It can act as a witness against a a disobedient or a sinful, resistant heart. Songs can do that too. And tonight, for our text in Deuteronomy, we have a song that does exactly that. Deuteronomy 32 often labeled the song of Moses, but it's really better thought of as the song of Yahweh. It's a song uh, that God intended to get stuck into the hearts of his people. He wanted this song to be unforgettable and to be a song that would teach Israel. It was to serve as a witness, a a witness against Israel. And he is the one who instructs Joshua and and really Moses to teach this song. Deuteronomy 31 verse 14 says, The Lord said to Moses, Behold, the days approach when you must die. Call Joshua and present yourselves in the tent of meeting that I may commission him. And Moses and Joshua went and presented themselves in the tent of meeting. Verse 19, now therefore write this song and teach it to the people of Israel. This was an assignment that's given by God. Moses is to capture these words and he's to turn it into a song. He needs to teach it to the people. Verse 19 of chapter 31 goes on, put it in their mouths that they, that this song may be a witness for me against the people of Israel. So it's a song that's purposed to do two things. It's meant to be one of those songs that's impossible to forget. It's meant to have such a a recognizable melody that if you heard one person singing it, you would likely start singing it as well or humming it. And those lyrics, they would come to mind and it would stick with you for perhaps the rest of the day. It was to be that kind of song. Uh, it's a song that's in their mouths. It's, it's on their hearts. It's so well known. But notice verse 19 also says... It's meant to be a song that stands against the people of Israel. God wants this song to be one that they know very well because when they disobey God and they will, this song will become an accuser against them. Strategically, God is is using this song as an instrument of condemnation. This beloved song that they know by heart, that they often sing, it's going to serve as a witness against them one day. I don't know if you've ever tried to write a song. I I haven't. Tough task for anybody, no small accomplishment. But here is Moses giving this task to write a song, but equally hard because it's, something that he knows that the people 
will one day turn away from God and and they're going to lose interest in God because times are about to get sweet and, and life is going to become easier. Israel will taste prosperity from the promised land. And rather than growing in their desire for obedience, it has the opposite effect. Look at verse 20 of chapter 31. For when I have brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to give to their fathers, and they have eaten and are full and grown fat, they will turn to other gods and serve them and despise me and break my covenant. And when many evils and troubles have come upon them, this song shall confront them as a witness, for it will live unforgotten in the mouths of their offspring. For I know what they are inclined to do even today before I have brought them into the land that I swore to give. So Moses wrote this song the same day, taught it to the people of Israel. Israel will fail. They can't live perfectly. Even before they entered the land, Moses and Joshua, they know that eventually Israel's sin will turn them away from God. They will grow uninterested. They will abandon God. And in their apostasy, this song will serve as a witness. The lyrics which have been lost on them for some time will finally begin to give them some clarity as the judgment of God overtakes them. Moses' song, it's, it's really the song of Yahweh. It's a song that's purposed by God to teach much about God to those who desperately need God. It's a song that I want to try to show you tonight that, that teaches the singer to recite God's attributes and remember God's works and reject God's rivals and rejoice in God's compassion. This is a song for all of us tonight, a song that points to the grace of God, a song that even though it stands as an accuser against God's people, it's one that ends with an amazing reminder of God's grace. And that grace is something worth celebrating. If you're with us tonight, not as a, not as a Christian, not as a, a believer or follower of Jesus, then like Israel, these words are going to have little meaning for you, but my prayer is that you would let this song teach you who God is, that you would see what he's done and how there's judgment for sin. But because this is a song of hope, there is joy in the the final verses of this song that can be yours tonight if you would embrace God's compassion that's expressed towards you in the gospel. And and for the believers tonight, this song is one I'm praying you'll allow to get written on your heart. It's a, a song that serves as a great teacher and a guide for the Christian life. One that will remind you frequently of how truly amazing our God is. And one that will, I'm sure, motivate your allegiance to him in a world of prosperity and comfort and a world that daily beckons you to abandon the God you love. We need this song. All of us do. Let's look at it together. 
Deuteronomy 32, verse 1, Give ear, O heavens, and let me speak. And let the earth hear the words of my mouth. Let what I have learned drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, as the droplets on the fresh grass and as the showers on the herb. For I proclaim the name of Yahweh, ascribe greatness to our God. The rock, his work is perfect. For all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. What does this song of Yahweh teach us? First, recite God's attributes. God wants his people to know what he is like. We need this song to help us more frequently and regularly see God for who he is. The opening right here to this song in verse 1, it could look like a courtroom where the witnesses being called forward are the heavens and the earth. The song's often viewed that way as, as like the beginning of a legal accusation or some kind of lawsuit address, but it's far more important than just some courtroom. This is a song about Yahweh that the entire world must hear. It's for all the heavens and all the earth. The world must know who God is and, and what he's like and how he judges with, with unfaithfulness, and yet he offers compassion, makes a way for the guilty to live. And this teaching, its purpose to have this refreshing effect on the singer. Verse 2, as refreshing as rain and dew and showers are in a place where that doesn't happen very much. The teaching of this song is meant to be like that, to bring life and growth and health. Just like rain and dew, like the rain we got yesterday. I'm sure some of you, you know, are noticing that your yard's looking a little bit better today. It's just like that. This song is purposed to, to be refreshing and to be a help. This song is meant to be a witness to everyone. It's a song for all to sing and all to see God as he is. And this song is good for all who sing it. It's beneficial and and helpful. And why is that the case? Well, verse 3 tells us, I proclaim the name of Yahweh, ascribe greatness to our God. The, The whole world needs to hear it. And it's a song that will benefit all who hear. Why? Because this is a song about God. Proclaiming his name, that means this is a song that explains and expounds and presents God's nature. And when God's nature is on display, greatness must be ascribed to him. When you realize who God is and what God is like, I mean, the most fitting response is to be stopped in your tracks And just marvel at his greatness. Understanding God better results in an acknowledgement of his greatness. It's imperative that we try to understand God as he's revealed himself to us in his word. 
I had the joy of serving as a membership pastor here for, for four years, and, and part of that uh, role was to teach the membership class. And our very first class begins with some of those distinctives of Grace Church. And our first one is our, our high view of God. We teach that God is holy and, and he's righteous and he's one who defines good and bad. He's the one that determines what's right and wrong and even man's purpose in this world. Your view of God is so important, so crucial to your spiritual life. Your, your personal view of God matters so much quickly. A.W. Tozer says, what comes into our minds when we think about God? It's the most important thing about us. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. The most important fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. And where does this song of Yahweh begin? What does God want us to know and recite and sing about him? Verse four, the rock, his work is perfect. For all his ways are just, a God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. God is faithful. He's reliable. He's trustworthy. These are the truths that God wanted his people to know about him. There isn't a, a new verb of speech here in this verse, but it seems like this is what the people are supposed to say and sing. This sort of national anthem for God's people. It begins with just this one Hebrew word, and it's the word rock. God pictured as the rock, it's meant to remind us that he is a place of protection that he is utterly reliable as our source of safety. It's something that clearly Moses doesn't want the singer of this song to doubt. God described as the rock. It's not isolated to verse 4. Rather, four more times it shows up, verse 15 and 18 and 30 and 31. Sometimes songwriters do that, right? They find a good line and they just keep repeating it. God is the rock over and over and over. This image just gets impressed upon the singer that we may never forget or neglect God's absolute trustworthiness. He is our protection, our refuge. And to make sure that we know what kind of protection God offers, Moses flushes it out. His work is perfect. All his ways are just He's a God of faithfulness, without injustice, righteous and upright is he. God's work is perfect. It's without defect. That's what Moses is saying. God is blameless and, and perfect. It's difficult for us. We're so limited in our knowledge and power and ability. But God wants us to know that he is the opposite he wants us to know that he is in no way limited by imperfections or by sin. His ways are perfect, despite how they 
might seem to our limited point of view, this rock is perfect and he's just. God is not neutral towards injustice. He's not a God who ignores the actions of the wicked and disregards the the cries of, of those who are his own. He is just and those who faithfully follow him will receive justice. God promises to make things right as we read down in verse 35 of this song. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. Verse 36, he'll render justice for his people. This rock is perfect and just, and he's a God of faithfulness. God is completely reliable. Another difficult concept for us, isn't it? Another characteristic that's difficult because all we know is Disappointment in this category. No one, not even the best person that we know, no one is perfectly reliable. All we know is our relationships with each other and we know even our own limitations. And so when we hear that word reliable, we, we sort of put our own thoughts of who we are on God. This is why we need this reminder about God. We may be tempted to do that, to sort of equate our imperfect reliability with with God. We may, without even much thought, begin to think that God is more like us and, and less like he really is. We may begin to even think that God is not as faithful as he says he is because of how we're treated by others. Or maybe because how we're perceiving the events that are happening around us. Or even as we think about how God does or doesn't answer our prayers. But what does God's song teach us? It teaches us that God is the rock and he's perfect and he's just and he's faithful. And in classic Hebrew form, those thoughts, they're just repeated to make sure we don't miss it. I love it when God's word does that. God is without iniquity. He's just and upright. It's just the same thoughts, making sure that we see that God is the rock. He is the the best protection and he is the ultimate refuge. That's why David writes in Psalm 34, verse 8, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. It's why Paul can write in Romans 8, 28, we know that all things work together for good for those that love God and are called according to his purpose. When God is your rock, there is little need for anxiety or worry about all the things that make life so difficult, so challenging. When God is your rock, there's little reason to point the finger at everyone else. There's little reason to complain or to be bitter or to be angry. Not when we have a rock like God. This song teaches us that God is the rock. He is great. He's unchanging. He's sturdy. He's perfect and just and faithful. He is completely reliable and in all ways trustworthy. It's no wonder Moses wants this word rock in your mind. 
and, and why he compares Israel's idols to a, a different kind of rock, a lowercase r rock. You see that in verse 31 and, and verse 37. There is no other rock, no other refuge. How foolish to look to something for safety and protection outside of God. Those rocks are nothing. They offer zero so how important to begin here, to begin with these truths and all those hymns and songs that we sing today, all those songs about God being our rock, they begin right here with this song of Yahweh and how important it is for us to recall the truths of, of who God is, how crucial to remind ourselves over and over that God is this rock. We have to move on. What else can we learn from the song of Yahweh? Well, recite his attributes. Also remember God's works, verses 5 to 18. To help us see the amazing works of God, Moses sets God's faithfulness and God's rock-like character in contrast to the nature of his people. Verse 5, the people of God are the exact opposite of this rock says they've acted corruptly toward him. They're not his children because of their defect, but are a perverse and crooked generation. Do you thus repay, verse 6, Yahweh, O people who are wickedly foolish and without wisdom? Is not he your father who has bought you? He's made you and established you. This song will accuse Israel. The reliability of God will be responded to with corruption from his people. Israel, they'll become blemished and, and shameful. They'll be a perverse and crooked generation. They'll be the opposite of who they should be. And these two rhetorical questions in verse 6, they, they help us to further see the contrast between God's perfect reliability and, and Israel's imperfections. They simply don't know how foolish they're being. And it's as if they, they don't even recognize that Yahweh is their father and he's the one who's responsible for their existence, for the divine favor that they receive from him so frequently. It's like they've forgotten that he gives them breath for life and how he has preserved them so faithfully. They foolishly miss it. Why? Well, as verse 7 to 18 will teach us, they've forgotten God's works. Three weeks ago, we saw the importance of remembering the grace of, of Yahweh in chapters 1 to 4. Remembering God's grace, it's, it's meant to stir us to obedience. We'll hear that theme sort of resurfaces. The grace of God is clearly on display in God's works. Look at verse 8. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance... When he separated the sons of man, he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the sons of Israel. For Yahweh's portion is his people. Jacob is the allotment of his inheritance. He found him in a desert land and in the howling waste of a wilderness, he encircled him. He cared for him. He guarded him as the pupil of his eye. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that hovers over its young, he spread his wings and caught them. He carried them on his pinions. 
Yahweh alone guided him, and there was no foreign God with him. He made him ride on the high places of the earth, and he ate the produce of the field, and he made him suck honey from the rock and oil from the flinty rock, curds of cows and milk of the flock with fat of lambs and rams, the breed of Bashan and goats with the finest of the wheat, and of the blood of grapes you drank wine. To summarize it, God chose this people, verses 8 and 9. He provided for them in the desert, verses 10 and 11, and God granted Israel incredible prosperity in the land, verses 13 and 14. God graciously chose Israel to be his portion and his allotted possession out of all the sons of God, out of all the nations, they were graciously chosen. And God provided and protected them as if they were a defenseless and and helpless people. God surrounded and protected and defended. And if that weren't enough, God graciously and abundantly gave to them. They have been blessed with more than enough. And Israel's response, they've forgotten. They've neglected this gracious work of God. Verse 15, but Jeshurun grew fat and kicked You grew fat, thick, and sleek. Then he abandoned God who made him and treated the rock of his salvation with wicked foolishness. They made him jealous with strange gods, with abominations. They provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons who were not God, to gods whom they have not known, new gods who came lately, whom your fathers did not dread. You neglected the rock who begot you, forgot the God who brought you forth. In their prosperity, Israel forgot God. Instead of honoring him, they despise him. They kick like an animal. They bite the hand that feeds them. They revolt and they rebel. They neglect the rock. They forgot God by going after other gods, strange gods that are abominations and detestable in the sight of God. Israel forgot these works that God had done. They forgot God's gracious work in their life. And in beautiful language, verse 18, Moses captured sort of both of God's paternal and maternal roles in the life of Israel, just signifying once and for all Israel's need of God for their very existence and to forget him the way that they have, as one commentator puts it, is to truly trample underfoot the grace of God. Now, of course, our circumstances are very different from Israel's here. But before we move to the next point, I think it's helpful. And I hope you see how similarly God treats those who are his still today. God desires that you belong to him, that you be his child. That's an amazing work of his grace. And God promises to provide for you. God promises to give you peace in your life and to fill your life with joy and to be a shepherd that never forsakes you. God's grace is often on display as he overflows our lives with so much Goodness, so much grace. His blessings are too numerous. His goodness in the lives of those who love him, it's so frequently on display. 
We need this song. We need to recall God's attributes and recite them. We need to remember God's work because without it, we run the risk of the same outcome as Israel here. To neglect this song, we risk our minds and hearts becoming fat and foolish. Our minds just seeing the abundance of of God's goodness in our life, but in our foolishness, beginning to forget the basic truths of who God is and what he's done. The outcome is that our hearts become capable of contempt for our Savior when we convince ourselves that we're something and somebody important. That we've grown strong, not realizing how we're slowly growing distant from God and scoffing at the idea of having to to depend on God for, for provision. When you become your own rock and you worship yourself, your heart will kick against the Savior and especially rebel against his word, instead of being filled with the love and obedience that should be there instead. How important to remember God's work in your life to save you and to sanctify you and to sustain you. Recite and remember. This song also teaches, number three, to reject God's rivals. The song continues and It's really his response to the disobedience of his people. Let me read it, verse 19. And Yahweh saw this and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and daughters. Then he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end shall be. For they are a perverse generation, sons in whom is no faithfulness. They have made me jealous with what is not God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are not a people. I'll provoke them to anger with a wickedly foolish nation. For a fire is kindled in my anger and it burns to the lowest part of Sheol and it consumes the earth with its produce and it sets on fire the foundations of the mountains. I will heap calamities on them. I will exhaust my arrows on them. They will be wasted by famine and consumed by plague and bitter destruction. The teeth of beasts I will send upon them with the venom of crawling things of the dust. Outside the sword will bereave and inside terror. Both choice man and virgin, the nursing baby with the man of gray hair. I would have said, I'll cut them to pieces. I'll cause the memory of them to cease from men. Had I not feared the provocation by the enemy, lest their adversaries misjudge, lest they say our hand is triumphant and Yahweh has not done all this. For they are a nation where counsel perishes and there is no discernment in them. Would that they were wise, that they had insight into this, that they would understand their future How could one pursue 1,000 and two put 10,000 to flight unless their rock has sold them and Yahweh handed them over? Indeed, their rock is not like our rock. Even our enemies themselves judge this. For their vine is from the vine of Sodom and from the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of poison. Their cluster is bitter. Their wine, the venom of serpents. 
the deadly poison of cobras. Is it not laid up in store with me, sealed up in my treasuries? Vengeance is mine, and retribution in due time their foot will stumble. For the day of their disaster is near, and the impending things are hastening upon them. I wish we had more time to dig into this stanza, but what can we learn from it? Well, God is provoked to anger at the sin of his people. He was provoked to bring judgment on them because of their unfaithfulness. Their sin angered God. Why? Well, because his expectation for loyalty was not met. The command for faithfulness was discarded. The commitment they had made to love God has just been dismissed. And verse 22 says it caused God to burn with anger. God hates sin and God will judge it. And God's jealousy, it's a reminder that sin is offensive to God. And it's a reminder of why his judgment is deserved and why his forgiveness is needed. And God isn't only jealous for his people, he's also jealous for his name. And that causes God to switch from punishment and judgment to salvation. Why does God not completely wipe out Israel? Because it might give his enemies the wrong idea. This is what God says in verse 26 and 7. The enemies of God might think that they should get the credit for Israel's demise. God knows that the nations would miss that it was Yahweh who has done this thing and that they would give themselves a big pat on the back. God is jealous for his own name and for his own glory and to protect it, God's people are spared the full weight of the judgment they deserve. J.R. says there is more honor to God in saving men than in destroying them. This song shows us that. This part of this song teaches us that God's rivals should still be rejected. Even though God pardons and restores his people for his namesake, that doesn't mean that we can just do whatever we want. God gives up on disobedient Israel. He allows them to be handed over or to use Moses' words in verse 30, to be sold to their enemies. This perfect and utterly reliable rock chose to give them up. But God's enemies won't go unpunished. Unpunished, They too will taste God's vengeance. And I think such a helpful part of this song, verses 32 and 3, teach us that we're not to be envious of the wicked. We're not to be envious of these enemy nations. Notice what Moses writes. Their vines are from Sodom, fields are of Gomorrah. Those, of course, were wicked cities that were destroyed by God. And so a reminder that the wicked will be judged in the future. And even what they have in the present isn't all that great. Their grapes are poison and the clusters are are bitter. So the victories of the wicked will quickly turn sour. What they have, even in their future, so far from secure and their present success, it's not all that great not all that satisfying either. So the end of the wicked is certain. God hates sin. God will punish sin. Psalm 73 teaches, there is a noticeable pattern for life. 
The wicked sometimes prevail. They are successful and it can cause the righteous to be so envious. The wicked succeed and the righteous seem to suffer, but everything changes when the psalmist discerns their end. The same is is here in this song. The wicked will be destroyed. We have no reason to be envious of God's rivals. Quickly, number four, rejoice in God's compassion. Rejoice in God's compassion. Verse 36, for Yahweh will render justice to his people. And he'll have compassion on his slaves when he sees that their strength is gone and there is none remaining, bond or free. And he'll say, where are their gods, the rock in which they sought refuge, who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offering? Let them rise up and help you. Let them be your hiding place. See now that I, I am he, and there is no God besides me. It's I who put to death and give life. I've wounded. It's I who heal. And there is no one who can deliver from my hand. Indeed, I lift up my hand to heaven and say, as I live forever, if I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will render vengeance on my adversaries and I will repay those who hate me. I'll make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword will devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from the long-haired leaders of the enemy. O nations, cause his people to shout for joy for he will avenge the blood of his slaves and he will render vengeance on his adversaries and he will atone for his land and his people. This song has one last stanza here for us. One last truth to learn. God has declared that Israel's future will be one of unfaithfulness and she can't avoid the judgment that will come. But Yahweh, the rock, is a compassionate God. You may be wondering why this is a song that I would title, you know, celebrate the grace of Yahweh. Well, we celebrate the truth that we see here that God graciously intervenes. God will save his people. God will have compassion on them. Why? Because unlike the false idols of Israel, Yahweh is a God who sees. He'll see when their strength is gone, verse 36, a way of recognizing that Israel is powerless. It's a a phrase that speaks of, of hands that have evaporated. God's face will no longer be hidden from his people. He'll see Israel's condition. He'll see that they're close to being without hope, that there's nothing they can do. And so the song of Yahweh teaches them one last truth. In verse 37, God begins, I believe, his greatest lesson to teach the foolishness of chasing idolatry when God the rock is accessible. These lyrics will remind Israel that they have foolishly put their trust in little pebbles compared to the rock. And so God, with obvious irony here, he challenges these false idols to step forward and to help Israel in her time of need. Let them do what only the rock can do. Let these little rocks that so willingly took your sacrifices and your time and your life and that got you into this mess in the first place, let them help you. Let them now be your hiding place. 
They haven't protected you thus far. They haven't helped you. Actually, they have only failed you. And they always will. These false gods can't do anything because as verse 39 captures for us, there is but one true God. 39 is loaded with words that are meant to force our eyes on God. See, now, look, I am he. There is only one rock and God declares that he is it. The surrounding nations believed that, that it was so many gods, numerous gods that were responsible for different parts of their lives, doing all these different tasks. But God says, there is only one, and it's me. I am he. I give life, God says. I end life. God says, he brings judgment. He brings relief. And there is simply no one who can stop him. No one can change God's sovereign purposes. No God exists that can alter his plans. And this becomes important as God's declaration to bring healing is now better seen as this unstoppable promise. There's no other power who can stop what God promises to do. The wicked cannot stop God's desire to save his people. They can't stop God's promise of judgment. God guarantees it. He takes an oath, verse 40. He swears by his own raised hand and his own name. It's, it's a promise that's similar to God's oath with Abraham in Genesis. It's weighty and serious. And so God makes it clear, idolatry is so foolish. And how compassionate of God to remind his people through this song of a, of a timeless truth. Idolatry is always this way. It never pays off. They never help. Those idols never protect. They are no rock at all. Whatever those idols are for us today, the same is true. Our status our job, our education, our financial security, our position, our success, maybe our children's success. None of those compare to the rock. And all of those things will fail. And verse 43 ends, and we're called to celebrate. Celebrate God, our rock, Yahweh has restored his relationship with Israel. He's taken vengeance on Israel's enemies. He's made atonement for the land and his people. This song is but a foretaste of the atonement that God would make for our sin. Through the shedding of the blood of Jesus, your sins can be atoned for. You can be fully and finally forgiven if you would repent and, and believe in the gospel. That is cause for celebration. That is cause to re rejoice in the compassion of Yahweh. Through the gospel, we have such reason to celebrate, such reason to sing and shout what God has done. The song of Yahweh, Moses says in verse 46, and we'll end here, place in your heart 
all the words which I'm warning you today. Verse 47, it's not an idle word for you. Indeed, it is your life. I know that was fast, but I hope this song gets stuck in your head. I hope it's a song that you never forget. Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for this song, for these words, God, that have instructed your people for thousands of years. I pray that you would help us now tonight to learn from it and to devote these truths to our lives. God, thank you for helping us to see the rock that you are and the foolishness of our hearts. Father, would you help us to faithfully follow you and to celebrate your grace that's at work in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.